Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As usual, things that we discuss on the show that are online, links for those resources will be available on our episode page at jimruttshow.com. Thanks. Today's guest is Jason Mock. Jason's a farmer in Gaston, Indiana, or thereabouts. I bet you hang out at the Barking Cow from time to time. You've been to the Barking Cow? No, but Google Earth showed it. <laughs> One of the few points of interest in Gaston, Indiana. Very few. Ah, oh, goodness. So why don't we start with tell us the story of how you got into farming. You didn't really initially set out to be a family farmer. My dad thought it'd be a good idea to tag along my grandpa in delivering pioneer seed in about 1975, and he found another farm daughter in that my mom, and I think uh, one thing led to the other in a gravel road or two, and here I am. But uh, both sides of my family farmed, so it was kind of a spot where I thought I was always going to farm, uh, but you know, it didn't go as Wally Cleaver would have written it. You mean go on from there? (laughs) Give me the 90-second tour. You know, kid grows up in farm country, accidental result of encounter on a dark road. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, my mom, you know, when when I was in high school and college, corn was probably like a buck 50 and beans were $4 and we weren't making any money. And, you know, I wasn't the the dumbest kid in school. So she was, she wanted me to go to school and, and get a real job or a, a business job. So I went away and, and got a marketing degree, went to Indianapolis selling insurance and came back home and became a landscape contractor. And once I got in my late 20s, my, my father got pancreatic cancer and he brought me back uh, to kind of teach me how to do his job. And I had about four or five months with him. And uh, 2011 was the uh, first crop I put out, uh, basically just replacing him of what he did on the farm. So I was kind of like a, a literal life relay from, from him to me. Yeah, that's a tough story and a tough way to get into the business, but you've done some interesting things since, right? What are you doing on your farm now? I've got a kind of two lives, kind of Jekyll and Hyde, if you will. I've got the nuclear family farm where we farm about 3,000 acres. And I'm here at the office with Jonathan. And uh, we started Constant Canopy about five years ago. It was basically just a, a Twitter page. And it's, it's led to, uh, you know, a lot of experimentation, a lot of uh, new ideas. I started uh, farming multiple crops at once, and now we're getting to intergrazing. We bought a meat company. So we're trying to kind of leave the idea of uh, a farmer needs to stay in his lane and just produce, produce, produce. You know, we, we talk about five more bushel, five more bushel, keep fertilizing and uh, actually feed people. You know, that's 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 what it comes down to. And uh, when you get into that space, it really opens up your bandwidth to be able to do a lot more things than just uh, grow something that the Chicago Board of Trade sets a price for. Yeah, it varies by the day. You have no control over it, right? Yeah. So what are the big issues facing the, you know, the classic big production farmers in a place like Indiana? Well, I don't think, you know, right now we've got some relatively good times. Anytime the economy is uncertain and we have 
you know, hyperinflation. You know, the last time we were had a left administration, times were good with Obama, you know, right after in that 2009, 2010, ethanol was coming on and corn went up to eight bucks, beans were 18. And now we've kind of went back. So economics are good, but one thing that, that follows, you never outrun it. So nitrogen's doubling in price, P&K's doubling, you know, seed's going up, rent's going up. So, you know, I, my, my favorite saying is a man is only as faithful as his options. And as soon as the price of uh, commodities go up, everything follows. So we're just always ahead of the curve. And a lot of times, um, you know, we're price takers. So when it's the other way, we're really scratching and clawing. But right now is one of them times economically it's good. Uh, we can go into other facets uh, as far as community integration and, and the, the problems we have in that side as well. Yeah, and of course, we're talking here about the big production farms, right, which are, you know, fertilizing right up to the limits, planting hedgerow to hedgerow, et cetera. Yep, yep. My family farm is unique in that we've got 12,000 pigs so we've got some farms that are strictly grain that is, and uh, when nitrogen doubles in price, you know, we just put on the pig shit and grow corn basically off pig shit. So we've got a, a little bit of a closed loop system there where we're hedged a little bit. We're, we're debt free. Uh, we, we, the problem with that is we have a lot of old shit. So, you know, tires go flat and things break and we're welding and beating on stuff. But, uh, there's a little bit less stress when you sleep at night in that. But generally, Mock Farms is all about production. We produce pork for Tyson and uh, corn, beans, and wheat, and some of our relay stuff. Yeah, sounds interesting. When we chat a little bit pregame, you said you're getting tired of the hardcore production farming. What is it about it that's putting you off your feed? Well, it just, you know, one of the reasons I got this shirt, you can't see it, but it says Farm Weird. You know, one thing that happens when you lose your father and I lost another uncle, both at 53, and they were both just hardcore farmers. You could just see them really put every ounce of energy into getting the crop out and staying up at night, really pushing their body and then watching them pass. You just really lose that gland where you give a rat's ass about, you know, producing more corn. It's just like, you know, right now I've been spraying this morning squirting nitrogen on the ground for a corn crop ahead of a rain. I'll do it all night tonight. So it washes the leaves off. I can smell it on my hands. And uh, I just would rather just be out there with the birds and the bees and uh, the, the flowers and the trees. <laughs> yeah, but how do you do that and make a living? Well, you just got to You got to think about it and you got to develop a market and you've got to be you got to be thinking literally three or five years ahead and you've got to learn how to hold your breath. The reason why we, we purchased Muncie Meats and constructed the team and we've taken on a lot of debt is we've got a vision that's going to take a couple years to materialize. But, you know, when you do that, you also have got to look at, uh, you know, being diversified and have businesses that are cash cows. You know, you've got to you've got to build a credit. You've got, you know, for instance, I not only do I farm, but I, I do speaking. I sell seed. I, I still have a snow removal business. There's got to be certain things that hit your bank account so that you can stretch innovation and hold your breath on those things for things to eventually materialize and, and build that market. Indeed. Now, you have a, an umbrella company that does some interesting things. Constant Canopy. 
and I've read the website for our show here. And one of the things you talk about is the constant canopy cropping system. And I saw, I don't know if it was on your site or somewhere, that you guys have the Indiana State record for maximum soybean yield per acre. And it was some ridiculous number. Yeah. That happened in 2018, and we've been striving this this year. We've got a, a chance of, of beating that on a field now. But what eventually the, the first kind of experiment was raising a cereal and a summer annual together, and I can play them off of each other. So our problem in, in Indiana is we get about 44 inches of rain on average, but mother old mama earth is batshit nuts sometimes in May and June, and we might get 20 inches of rain. We might get seven at once, and uh, we're constantly fighting too much precipitation. We're fighting uh, pigweed as we've sprayed more and more chemicals into bare dirt. The the weeds have evolved, and they're just pissed off with teeth and hair underneath their arms down. You can't kill them with Roundup. So we've got to use cereal and, and plants out there to kind of defend the soil. So um, my landscaping background kind of allowed me to look through a different lens of agriculture into where instead of trying to maximize one crop, uh, you can throw two crops out there or three crops out there and integrate cover crops and manure into the mix. So kind of the way that we we cheated, if you will, and, and kind of what's that 1988 100-meter dash guy that won uh, from Canada? I can't remember. Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson, yeah. I think he's like 9.69, and they went, holy shit, but he was on roids, right? So, <laughs> he was juiced big time. He was juiced. So uh, we, with all this pig shit, I had devised a gandy box, which is a cedar, and I put it on a shit tank. And uh, my grandpa thought I just lost my mind because this isn't the way that you uh, raise wheat. But I wasn't after raising the best wheat. I was after actually making a trick play for soybeans. So I seeded uh, my wheat above where I injected pig shit at a really low rate. And I used that wheat as basically pattern tile and solar reflection panels. So I planted my soybeans about 10 inches away from the wheat roots. Uh, They were allowed to access that mycorrhizal fungi network and get oxygen to the roots. I could plant a little bit earlier. And then when I harvest my wheat, I push the soybeans down, and when I push that wheat thatch down, it reflects solar energy into the the soybean canopy. So I just get a healthier, more pissed-off plant that now has a lot more sunshine when it's making all its babies. So it's basically like giving someone some cocaine and, uh, you know, some Viagra and say, go out and uh, make some babies, buddy. (laughs) Bad analogy, but you really got to set up and think about venues that you create and when you're a big plant dork like myself, you do a lot of walking, you do a lot of thinking, you see your shadow a lot, and you kind of get a good sense of first principles of, of how things actually work. So you start designing uh, with that in mind. And uh, that's that's the interesting thing about getting into multi-cropping and, and livestock integration and that stuff of, of how you can set things up. And so in short, you basically, and you, is this how you're still doing it? You added wheat in with the soybeans. Yep, I put it in strips. So uh, a lot of people have tried relay cropping, but they're so concerned about the first crop yield. And um, this was the third year that I kind of figured out through trial and error of the value of the wheat isn't in 
strictly the contribution margin or difference in the variable cost. It's in the inflection point or complementary-ness of the soybeans. So I kept increasing my row widths so that the soybeans wouldn't compete for sunlight. And I just used the wheat for their ancillary benefits of that root mass of the water consumption when uh, water is a liability early in the spring and then the solar aspect. So what, what you can do is as a landscaper, you know, a lot of people have old shrubs and they just keep on hedge trimming it and uh, the, the plant just kind of dies of a massive heart attack. And if you really want to manage it well, you go into the plant and you start pruning out the dead and it allows sunlight to go inside that plant and it can breathe and the dew can dry off so you, you can get a healthier plant. So with row crops, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, it's a long season and for soybeans, they need to have more light. And the way you can kind of cheat the system instead of having all soybeans out there and they're all competing against each other and they're only getting a marginal amount of sunlight per plant, you put a crop that will die without intervention like a like a wheat or a barley in early June. So when the when the soybeans just coming up and it's an adolescence and something dies right next to it, you know, as Steve Jobs says, the greatest invention of life is death. Uh, so we can actually put multiple plant species out there and uh, work off of each other. So cool. Just to get a sense of it, you know, now that you've been doing it for three years, what's the ratio of, you know, the square footage of wheat versus soybean? Just trying to envision this in my head. It's basically on 60 inch centers, which is five feet, but I plant the rows in twin or quad rows. So you create two Fibonacci sequences, if you will. So I, I, I'm really into numbers and starting as many things as possible. So your wheat will grow uh, very rapidly in the latter part of April and early part of May, and then it'll hit senescence. And then your soybeans will start really photosynthesizing in late May. So you've got to figure out, imagine you have a pit bull that's on a leash and it's just going to eat your nose. You've got to figure out how long you need that leash so it doesn't bite your nose but it still gets real close to you. So that's basically as, as when I started intercropping, I do it kind of sloppy the first few years in small scale to figure out the physiological dimensions of crops to figure out how, where the inflection point is, where the where a complementary point is, and you design it based on what you're trying to do instead of the hard steel that you have in the barn. But again, just again, to help our listeners visualize of, you know, say 100 acres, how many acres of that would be wheat versus how many acres would be soybeans? It's all wheat. It's all soybeans. They're just right next to each other. So they're growing at the same time for 80 days. Are they literally growing on top of each other? So soybeans are growing right in the middle of the wheat where the wheat was? If you took the strip areas and measured those. I guess that would be 50-50. And everyone, uh, when I say that, they, they go, well, how did, did you break a record? You, you double it? No, you still get that many soybeans, more than a monocrops by spacing it out wider. And uh, a crop, you know, it doesn't matter if you plant them in five inch rows or, or 60 inch rows, the, the, the finites is what's important. So, you know, like hemp plants we did last year on 10 foot spacings and the hemp plants became enormous. They were like Clark W. Griswold's Christmas tree put on top of the station wagon. So, you know, the season is long, and each day is important. And uh, when you think about amplified agriculture, you've got to weight the, uh, the importance of, of, of crops in different parts of their life cycle and amplify their ability to produce more when it's really relevant, like in, in reproduction. 
Cool. So basically the wheat crop, you said, is economically marginal. You don't make much money on that. But the positive impact on keeping the soils relatively dry, reflecting the sunlight, maybe pest control, etc., works to actually more than make up for the lack of area of, of soybeans. Is that is that accurate? Exactly. And then you can cut your variable costs on the wheat. So one thing is, okay, let's say I can raise 100 bushel wheat, okay, if I do it solid. Well, you, you end up fucking yourself because you, you waste all your best days in a crop that is in senescence. So there's like 50 days between early June and mid-July before you can get another crop established in your most valuable days. So what, what Relay allows you to do is say, okay, I'm only going for 50 or 60 bushel wheat, so I'm going to plant one-third of the seed, and each seed is going to have more sunlight and more nutrients in that band so I can cut my variable cost down and get genetic expression. So best analogy, let's say Michael Jordan, someone kills him and Scottie Pippen, so Steve Kerr gets 27 shots instead of four. Well, he's going to average 22 points when he averaged six. So everything is in nature is a product of its environment. If we actually cut rows back and, and plant less seeds, each seed will produce more. But we've got to think time and space and inflection. I keep going back to that, but the wheat crop can take 20 degree mornings and be fine. It just, you know, it can freeze and it grows later that day when it warms up. So we're just trying to capture more photosynthetic energy throughout the course of the year, which with annuals, you've got to use multiple annuals or you're just into either frost sensitive annuals or winter cereals that are going to die and go through senescence in uh, you know late spring. Ah, so basically what you're doing is spreading the time over which you are usefully capturing the light with photosynthesis. Exactly. And you get the edge effect, which is that Steve Kerr getting 27 shots with two different crops. So the wheat uh, will make leaves off the side and collect more solar energy in that spacing. And then the soybeans, when you prune it, will collect more energy. So you empower two different crops in two different seasons. A good analogy here is, let's say I'm, a, I'm, I'm Jason, the crazy fireworks salesman. All right. <laughs> I can believe it. And I just kill it <laughs> from June 30th to, you know, July 4th. And then I discount the shit out of things. And then I go broke and I eat ham and beans or you know, pork and beans the rest of the year. I could open, you know, Jason, the crazy uh, uh, Christmas tree decorations. Okay. And now I'm between July and Christmas and I'm like, well, shit, what am I going to do in October? Pumpkin spice, crazy man. And then, you know, what am I going to, oh, you know, you, you've got to maximize as, as you know, in economics, you know, everyone uh, is short-sighted and uh, there's a lot more value you can create through diversity than just having a, a few kick-ass days. So we just look at a farm field with the finite resources of why we're here, which is photosynthesis, and uh, maximize that derivative. And you know, you, you talk about sunlight, and people think you lost your mind. But Jesus, this is this why this is what a farmer's job is. Yeah, you're basically a, a, a light miner, right? Yeah. Cool. That's very, very good. Very clever. Now you've worked with two crops: soybeans and wheat. Have you done any experimentations with other combinations that might have these synergistic effects? It's been uh, limitless. We've done, you know, we've done summer crops together. Uh, there are some some really cool things. I'll tell you a little story. Um, four years ago, I knew I knew corn plants would put multiple ears on it if you planted less of them, but I wanted to really push the uh, pedal to see what its capability was and. Uh, 
my my kids are five and six now. They were uh, my oldest was was one going on two, and it, it was the summer we were going to potty train them. And uh, it's easy in the summer because they're you know they're out there in the diapers and we're outside. So I dug up a corn plant in a field that was right next to other corn plants when it was about two inches tall. And I planted it in my garden. I gave it about six foot and all the way around it so it could collect as much solar energy as possible. And I told my kid, hey, this is your target practice. You need to pee on this corn plant. <laughs> so I get the natural nitrogen. Uh, but the corn plant completely morphed. It, it, it understood that it had abundant sunlight. So it, it put two tillers on the side of the corn plant. And then every, then it grew instead of nine or 10 foot tall to compete with its other corn plant. It was just this Gary Coleman that was on steroids and it only got about five foot tall and it grew two sucker plants. And then every node, which is where the uh, leaf comes out, grew an ear. So I went, holy shit, I'm going to have 10 ears on this thing. What happened when the ears came out, it knew it had more energy. So leaves started to grow on the ears themselves and it grew another ear on the ear and I ended up having 31 ears from one seed. Wow! So the problem is you run out of daddy juice or baby batter up top so we only had enough pollen to get 12 ears to have considerable amount of grain on them but I had 31 silks and 31 ears on that one corn plant. So uh, you know that's the thing about genetic expression when you see things like that is okay we need to redesign cropping systems to get more value out of the seed, get more value out of a unit of nitrogen, get more value out of our aggregate finite resources of sunlight, water, you know, get equilibriums, uh, think about temperature. And, uh, you know, it's just limitless. Um, and then once you've done enough of this stuff in the, in the CBOT, you know, Chicago Board of Trade Commodities, you're like, well, shit, why don't we do this with uh, community integration with direct, to, direct market? and uh, more value out of crop. So that's kind of where we're at now is, you know, how can we do this with raspberries and have uh, chickens and rabbits and sheep eating between the rows to manage the perennial pastures and uh, to take out all the input. So I'm in these, uh, my, my biggest passion now is, is uh, these apocalyptic algorithms, if you will. We take technology and interweave it with uh, things that work in apocalypse and uh, create more food uh, without inputs. Just simply, you're a plant, you do this, you should be right here, you're an animal, uh, you know, <laughs> you like to eat this, we'll put you here, but we'll move you, and uh, that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Now, if you found other, you know, field crops that work together in a synergistic way. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, just corn and soybeans, corn in general. About four years ago when I was doing this, uh, expression with with corn a plant breeder from hawaii by the name of james bates caught my attention he was going around talking about this hundred hundred club and he was a plant breeder in hawaii and what he found was that plants would really shut down in the afternoon because of just the blazing heat and humidity so he started to actually put structures out there that would block and take that direct sunlight off plants and he found them to do better and he thought well same thought process as mine can we put plants that have different shapes and sizes and lower the population and get it aggregately a lot more? Uh, so he started doing a, a really low population corn where all the leaves would collect solar energy. And now what happens is as the sun changes, you know, you go from May, June, July, the sun will change its position in the sky on the steepness and height. 
but also it changes every day. So when you put these plants out in really low populations, as the sun changes position every second of the day, its shadows are cast in different positions. So you can have crops like soybeans, their ideal temperature is, is 81 degrees, where corn likes it at 88. So you let the corn take all the sunlight energy, convert that into multiple years, put only a dab of nitrogen in that spot, and then the soybeans all around it like to get shaded every once in a while, get a break. So it's, you know, I've messed around with that, but quite honestly, the problem with all this stuff is you can innovate and, uh, and, and really make something of it. But our, uh, you know, our, our government loves to subsidize crop insurance and none of this stuff, there's no box to check. So if I, when I start doing reverse cowgirl shit, now I've got no way of getting subsidized for my, uh, you know, APH or, it doesn't fit a box that would allow me to get another $150, $200 an acre, whatever it is, on Trump bucks that are sitting out or whatever it is. So you just kind of like, well, shit, you know, we, we got here. But anyway. Yeah, that's interesting because it shows that, you know, what no doubt were originally programs to help the farmer may have the tendency to lock the farmer into non-innovative practices. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so where I'm getting at is it's interesting to cut your teeth and learn way nature works with that kind of stuff and have a market for it. But the, the, the big killer, I think, or the, the big value is going to be in doing non-GMO things, more value out of things, things that you can pick and people can eat and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Interesting. Another couple of things you do under your constant canopy company brand. One of them I liked is turning manure into methane. Yeah. So, uh, Story about that, um, Jonathan, the office, I'm here at the Innovation Connector, Ball State. Five years ago, I was watching the Super Bowl, and uh, he comes on uh, for, he's running for Congress, and he goes, vote for land. It was, the, it was the weirdest commercial I ever saw, and I used to go, I used to be a college friend of, of his, Anyway, I, I, next day I tracked him down and I was talking about all this, the crazy shit I was doing on the farm. And I talked about manure management. And we've got 12,000 pigs, so our farm's got about 4 million gallons of hog shit. And I was talking about how our phosphorus levels are high and we just got too much of a good thing. So it kind of evolved into whiteboard talks and, and a lot of uh, research. And we kind of came up with this plan to go out and, and get – a bunch of manure under contract to add value to it. So this project's been going on for quite some time. And basically, uh, we've aggregately taken, uh, we have over 100 million gallons of hog manure contract of people that have way too many pigs for the, the space that they farm. And we'll take that ad additional manure and put it in a process where we can take the methane off the top and pump that into uh, uh, the pipeline and net meter it, and with the, with the whole California uh, RNG market, there's some money to be made in that space. And then that digestate, we can squeeze out the nitrogen and get an organically kosher nitrogen fertilizer. And then all everything else, we uh, integrate into biochar, which is down to the carbon. We've kind of plugged in pieces of different technologies that put this system together, and uh, we're getting closer and closer of, of making that a real thing soon but uh we're still in the process there so you're gonna be the king of pig shit there in central indiana yeah yeah <laughs>
Now, does the project look like it pencils out, you know, that the investment for the equipment is worthwhile relative to the downstream products? Well, it all depends on the uh, on the day. It it looks good. It's just a, it's a big project. You know, part of the problem when you have big projects like that, you know, you're going to attract some probably negative feedback from the community that don't really understand. They just, you know, not my backyard kind of thing. So you see that kind of stuff happen. We haven't seen anything yet in that space, but it works. Just uh, a lot of things going on. I'm always interested in the financial dynamics around business. And you think about something like if your main value stream is natural gas, it fluctuates fairly radically in price. Can you get long-term contracts or do you hedge or how do you deal with the volatility of the natural gas product? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's more complex than that with renewable natural gas, renewable energy credits. You've got some, a couple things that will increase the value of that natural gas in the, in the realm of uh, 10X to 20X of regular natural gas because it's derived from hog manure. So people that are looking to be allegedly carbon-free can allegedly buy some, though of course we know it all ends up in the same place, but it's this kind of bizarre accounting that they do. Yes, that's what it is. Interesting. You can't just hedge that because it's very dependent on kind of the supply and demand and probably long-term it isn't 20X, maybe it's 2X, but for the moment it's 20X, you might as well take it. That's right. It's something we've been working on, but we've done so many things in the meantime where it's just kind of it's kind of there and, and we're just kicking the can down the road. Now, I had a guy on the podcast last week with a very interesting idea that, you know, when you can get 10 or 20 X and doesn't make any sense, but his business basically plunks down natural gas fired generators and Bitcoin mining factories right at wellheads in Canada where they would otherwise be flaring off the natural gas. And I thought there is a clever ass idea. Just think of the next cryptocurrency. You got a little poop emoji and a shit coin. Exactly. Right. That'll trade. That should be a hot one, right? That explains the whole system in a nutshell. Shit coin. <laughs> Jason's always thinking, you know, my friend Vance Crow said, you got to talk to this dude because, you know, his brain ain't never stopped spinning, right? The stuff keeps going on. Now, the next thing you're doing is biochar. That's also another very interesting and innovative product. Tell us what that is and why it's important and useful and valuable and all that sort of stuff. Biochar is, is pretty much carbon. It's just, it's like, you know, you got your Tide laundry detergent, Tide Ultra, that's just ultra carbon. And uh, there's a lot of new markets. I mean, they're talking about potentially making computer components for it instead of silicon in the future. Uh, but in the in the ag space, uh, there's some interesting things you can do with it to really increase the attributes and, and the, the productivity of soil. Tell you a little story. I uh, I was on uh, MSNBC about two or three years ago. And, uh, you know, they did a four-hour interview, and they only kept the this spot where I said a monkey can write a check or something. But anyway, I had the local newspaper guy come out, and uh, he'd been a really speaking against these new hog barns. So I thought I'd do a little trick on him, and I put two five-gallon buckets of pig shit on both sides of the sidewalk, and I cleaned it all up nice and pretty. And one of them I put biochar in, and the other one I had alone. So I had him smell both buckets. He didn't know what they were. 
And the first one, he, he took a big whiff of. He's like, I don't smell anything. And the next one, he took a big whiff of, about fell on his ass. <laughs> and I told him it was pig shit, and he kind of looked like I, he just kissed his sister on accident or something. Uh, it was kind of a funny thing there, but uh, that's one thing biochar can do is actually uh, absorb uh, ammonium. And, uh, you know, a big problem are big scale environmental issues. A lot of them have to do with runoff. And we can use the biochar to uh, coat nitrogen. I think there'll be a lot of uses in a residential fertilizer and stuff like that. So there's there's a lot of a lot of things coming down the road with biochar. But as you alluded to, the the costs are pretty substantial in these systems. You've got multi million dollars uh, wrapped up in producing the biochar, other than you know just some hippies that are burning it in a trash barrel in California or something like that. So. Um, that's a big challenge in the short term. Yeah, here out where we are in our farm in the mountains, the soils are thin and acidic. And biochar helps in a couple of ways. You know, one is it increases the pH, makes it more alkaline. And it also holds water because the thin soils tend to, well, we get 40 inches of rain a year, most years. And you know, like you, you don't know when the hell it's going to come. But the soils, because they're light, they dry out quickly. And biochar seems to hold the water. And it also seems to somehow, I think you would probably understand the science of this better than I would, binds the nutrients to the soil better. Because again, being light and acidic, our nutrients tend to get washed out in the rain. We fertilize our fields with composted turkey litter from a guy nearby. And he's in balance. He doesn't have an excess. He has a so-called nitrogen management plan where he has deals with various landowners to spread composted turkey manure on every other year. So you have just the right amount for your hay fields. But small areas where we put on some biochar from our wood furnace, it definitely helps. Yeah. Yep. I think there's going to be a lot of use for it. I think I told you on a a previous podcast, we devised a a machine with Dawn equipment a couple years ago that, that mixed biochar with fertilizer and seed. And I had this black medium that we would put in strips when we did our relay cropping and cut it all with biochar and it did some really interesting things to hold that nitrogen in place over the winter underneath that cereal crop. Very interesting. What do you use for your feedstocks to make the biochar? Here in our part of the country, the typical feedstock are the tops from logging. We call pecker poles, skinny little trees that are too small for the sawmill. You can buy them for cheap. And you put them in the kiln, you cook them up, make charcoal out of them. And it's a pretty inexpensive source of carbon. What kind of inexpensive sources of carbon do y'all have? So we got our biochar from a company called Ecochar, and they had a project down in Orleans, Indiana, which was uh, turkey shit. So it was just incinerated turkey shit. And um, there's also a company I'm real interested in Missouri called Biomass Industries, and they are using wood. Uh, they got a lot of sawmills there, and they've got heating systems for your home that will uh, expedite that uh, burn, uh, so it won't burn it all the way down to the powder and ash. Will shit out biochar. I had to speak in Wichita, Kansas, a couple of years ago, and and we visited a farm with a, an Amish guy that was producing lettuce. He had about ten greenhouses, and he was heating all the greenhouses in the dead of winter with this biochar producing heating system. And he just had this big pile out back of, of regular wood and a big pile of biochar. And the guy would bring him wood and take the biochar away. And I was really interested in that concept 
if you can collaborate with some of these large tree companies uh, to uh, create a, a medium that you could distribute throughout the country in rural America and uh, have everyone produce biochar for you and value add and bag it. And, you know, I, I think it's I think it's endless if you think about how you can share and, and, and create a lot of minions that are you know, making it for you. There's, I think there's some things in that space to come. All right. We'll keep an eye out on them. Well, so the man's not busy enough with a 3,000 acre farm and various projects like the king of pig shit. He's also done bought a meat packing plant. <laughs> Tell us about that. How'd you get into that? Last July, we took over Muncie Meats, which uh, 1957. There's a lot of, of, of companies like that uh, that were after World War II. We, we came up with a refrigerated truck and some uh, ambitious Tom, Dick, and Harry's decided to uh, load up some meat and start selling to these local restaurants. And uh, this guy was one of them. And they actually had the contract for McDonald's hamburgers and Burger Chef in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so there's a very large company with 40 employees. They were doing 15 million in the 70s. It's extraordinary old equipment that was still laying around. And uh, we actually got it from a guy that worked there in high school and just kind of just kind of was one of them guys that didn't go out much and just kind of stayed with his craft and, and, and it kind of shrunk the company down somewhat. And uh, we bought it and we've kind of uh, plugged and played a lot of talented pieces. We've got some really ambitious young men that, that want to cut meat. And uh, we actually got a guy from the Ball State Entrepreneur uh, Program that won the whole entrepreneur thing. And his project was open up a meat company in, in Carmel, Indiana. And uh, somehow we convinced him to be our COO. So he runs, he kind of runs the show and he's the glue. And just about six months ago, uh, we've got uh, a man by the name of Nick Terry, and he was a director at Cisco Foods. So he knew exactly how the broadliner space worked. He had a lot of relationships, and he has just uh, exponentially increased our sales in restaurants. We've integrated a lot of technology. Uh, our, our, our goal in the next five years is to grow from primarily a restaurant supply company into a direct-to-consumer company. So we've got to kind of grow the restaurant side to to buy the infrastructure to convert, flip the pond over to residential. So we're putting systems in place where we can actually get fully vertically integrated from buying that, that livestock from the farmer, processing, packaging it, creating our own shelf space through the automated farmer's market or a lot of gas stations, you know, you don't have to be in a supermarket anymore. There's a lot of ways you can do deliveries. Uh, we're doing fundraisers, a lot of things to increase our uh, awareness. And uh, I'd go all day about all the stuff we've done. There's a lot of exciting things. I'll just let you ask the next question. <laughs> See where we go from there. <laughs> all right. Well, let's dig in a little bit into the meat processing facility. We do have one of those here in our little local area, which we've helped getting set up. What's your mix of species at your plant? Is primarily pork and beef. Uh, now we have bison and sheep and, and poultry as well. But uh, you know, a lot of guys from Indiana they want to drink three beers at night and eat a steak. That's the primary thing they want to do. And uh, bacon, you know, I could sell anybody a pound of bacon. So uh, we go through a lot of those. We got a roll stock machine to where we can take big 
big boxes, big pieces of meat, and we cut it all the way down to a pound of bacon, a pound of hamburger, and we distribute that now into all these gas stations and AFMs and deliveries. And that's kind of what we do is take big things and put them in the small and, and put them in as many hands as possible. Yeah. How about, have you guys gotten into the, you know, value added making, you know, pepperoni or meat sticks or any of that sort of stuff? There's good money in that. Yeah. We keep buying things and we've got a big smoker. Uh, we got a patty machine now. We, we've collaborated with a girl uh, that has ready-made meals. So she'll put together, you know, lasagna. And the main thing you got to really worry about in this space, if you're going to go out and create a service company that is processing beef. Everyone wants a steak, but you're going to have all this hamburger. So what we've created is with these value-added meals, we put the hamburger in lasagna. We put the sausage in the biscuits and gravy. We started a brand called The Bitchin' Kitchen, which is this no apologies. We put too much sausage in the in the biscuits and gravy, you know, and make it so audaciously good that uh, people will talk about it, you know, make it remarkable. Uh, but the main thing that we're doing are automated fundraisers. Uh, so we, we just started this about three months ago. And what it is, 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 is the school organization, church, they'll call us. We'll put an automated fundraiser on our e-commerce site, which is MuncieMeats.com. And then they'll send out a hyperlink through an email blast and you know print out pieces of paper to all the people that support and is around their organization and then they'll go to our site and they'll choose between a, a 45 and a 75 dollar meat box so to get that meat box they have to put in their email address they have to put their credit card information and become a muncie meats customer in our system so we would never convince 10 different organizations to be our sales force all at the same time. And we can grow this into 10, 20, 30, 40 different things going up. Geographically, we can expand. But every day, we're increasing the awareness of our e-commerce platform, but also our customer base that we can go back and create time algorithms on the back half to simply do this. And this is what I learned as a sales professional. It took a, a couple years to figure this out is it's a lot easier to ask someone how they'd like something that we gave them away to with a purpose and a, you know, something like that than it is to convince someone to try it. So we can five days later call them and say, how'd you like, you know, how'd you like the stick? And they have an opinion and we give them an option to, uh, to follow up and become a subscription customer or something like that. But in the, in the other thing we can do is now we create this outflow for grinds for hamburgers. So we can kill more and more and more cattle, sell more and more steaks, sell the grinds to the fundraiser, but then the fundraiser has steaks in it. So it kind of creates a kind of a, a circle there. Interesting. What, today, what percentage of your business is restaurant versus to consumer? The day we started, we were 99.9% .9 restaurants. COVID uh, hit us extremely hard November and December in our geographical area. A lot of restaurants shut down. And uh, we were working on designing all the sites. And we started the AFM January 11th, the fundraisers in February. Now we're about 65, 35. But we're, we're seeing exponential growth on our e-commerce platform. It's it's going up by the day. And that that excites us tremendously. We were at, at a goose egg you know, just in, in February, had a little bit of sales in March. So we're only, you know, what, three or four months into it. And we'll do over six or six figures this month just on our e-commerce platform alone. Do you guys ship around the country? 
No, we, we, we shipped some during COVID and it wouldn't get there in time. Gotcha. And that's the whole point of that automated farmer's market was just a, a locker system with 20 different lockers that, it, that can be between 110 and negative 10 degrees. And people go to our e-commerce platform, they'll order and order, they can get anything. And then we put that box in a refrigerated machine and then they just, that machine will send out a code to their cell phone. They roll up to it, unlock their box and they get it. And the point in that is a lot of people don't want to buy a quarter cow or half cow and cut a check for $1,500 and then their, their kid unplugs their deep freezer and now they got maggots. They want to eat a couple steaks. So if you're going to sell $50, $7,500 transactions, you can't spend $20 in a box and a bubble wrap and the dry ice and the shipping that goes to USPS. So this allows us to cut those costs, put the uh, cooling in one box, and then flip each locker multiple times a day. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that was my next point. You kind of jumped in on me. Let's back up a little bit. And again, this is the man who doesn't stop. This is the farm weird dude, right? Yeah, we've talked about pig shit. We've talked about biochar. We've talked about co-cropping. We've talked about meat cutting. And now, and last but not least, he's got the automated farmer's market. Yeah, but this isn't last but not least. I've got, I want to touch on something that I've, I can't stop thinking about. First, give us the whole story on the automated farmer's market. Then we'll go on to the, the one you can't stop thinking about. Okay. Basically, the automated farmer's market is just technology from Bell and Howe. And my, my mom, her, her boyfriend, after my, my dad passed, works for Bell and Howe. And he'd been telling me about this kiosk system. So we basically uh, took it and wrapped it in uh, Muncie Meats Automated Farmer's Market. And it's, it's literally, it's just a, a 20 individual lockers that can be cooled or, or hot. I described the, the competitive advantage from a transactional standpoint, but from a broader standpoint, the problem with real estate, commercial real estate, is if you want to be where, where traffic flow is, it's expensive as hell. You know, it's $5 million to have that lot next to Whole Foods. Um, there's billboards everywhere. So what this allows us to do is to go where everyone gets their groceries anyway. And then our prospects are the business owners around that, that have parking lots with space next to billboards. Billboards are important because we can plug this machine and we need 220 and all the billboards have 220. So we ask them, how much value are you getting for this corner of your parking lot? And they'll always say zero. And the exciting thing is now that our sales have ran rapid with this end of this first AFM, now we can go to the next prospect, which we have a plan to go to Indianapolis and say, well, this guy, we, we gave him a $300 floor, but we're giving them 2% of sales. So as, as sales go from 100, 200, 300, $400,000 a month, that number continues to go up. Yeah, they see more traffic, but that's a damn good thing. You know, that's 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 people that come in and get meat and they notice what they're selling at their place. Yeah, they'll, they'll pay money. They would pay money in a normal case of things. They bring somebody onto their lot on the percentage chance that they'll come in and buy some. And that might be something that we we go after, you know, in the future. The, the peach truck, there's a Georgia company that takes this peach truck around and they'll sell $60,000 worth of peaches in two hours. And they, they get us uh, set up for free places because of that traffic flow. Interesting. So let's draw the picture for the listeners. As I recall, you're telling me this thing is in a shipping container, essentially. 
Uh, similar, similar. Yeah, it's it's basically just a, a glorified big refrigerator. It, it's actually a refrigerator unit. There's like six of them stacked up against each other, but they're modular. So we made more space on the pad where we can go from 20 to 28 like that and just glue it onto the side. And these are all separate lockers. So they get a number code or something to open it up. Yep, so the machine has Wi-Fi. So as soon as we put their package in, the Wi-Fi sends out a text and an email to their cell phone and says your package has arrived. So the coolest thing is we put it in a place where they can pull their car right up to it, get out and they have, if they have their QR code ready, they can be back in their car in less than 10 seconds. So their kids, if, if they've got five kids that have runny noses, they don't have to clean them up to go into the thing, wait in line, wait in line, wait in line. You know, grandma doesn't have to get her walker out. She can stay in the car. They can stay right there, get their shit, and get out of there. Yeah. And you, can you keep different temperatures in different boxes? So you can have some that are frozen, some are refrigerated, some are... And some could be hot. And, I mean, I'm busy enough, as you can tell, but, I mean, there could be a collaboration with Uber Eats or Grubhub or something like that. And when you have, you know all these ghost kitchens and all this shit, you could create an intermediate uh, kind of distribution system like that and uh, just keep food warm till people have it. And then take out that time, that seven minutes where you go into the restaurant and the seven minutes to go up to the apartment to make this intermediate deal. And you could stack that in a couple columns next to frozen, next to the refrigerator. I mean, it's, it's limitless, the commerce and collaborations. Uh, you know, Lowry's Kennedy, they just kill it in, uh, you know, Valentine's Day. So put something that's killing it in a seasonal thing in with your thing to draw attention. You can help so many people out in a cheaper uh, transaction. And, and so we get a little bit into our expansion plan. We're going to go to Indi Indianapolis. I got some friends that uh, are have a landscape supply company on 126th Street which is ideally right in the middle of five kind of gentrified communities in Indianapolis where all the money is and the average income is $150,000, $200,000 uh, per household. And what we'll do is take a, a, a shipping container and put a cooler in there. And then when our trucks go to all our restaurants in Indianapolis, we'll fill that bigger distribution, mini distribution center there. And then we can run busy bees and little tinier sprinter trucks off of that shipping container and clover leaf these AFMs off of that and then give them a percentage of sales, one, two percent, to run that shipping containers in a spot in their parking lot. And then we can basically go to metropolitan areas and just only target the, the place where you're, you're in, a, in the market that you want. And then what's beautiful about that is now our actual employees, we put the QR code for our employee on the box. So she might have 12 that goes into this AFM. She just scans it. She hits OK, and then it sends out the Wi-Fi. So she'll leave that place to the next place. And if she's on a loop of five, she's doing 50, 100 transactions that are humanless when she's gone. And she just comes back in two hours. So now you can take like that Hotels.com aspect and say, you've got to be, you've got to pick up your package between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. or you get dinged a dollar or two dollars or whatever. And then you can flip each locker now three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. And now when you get the flip and you go 8x times 20 times 72 and you create critical mass, it just, it just, it, it can't compete with the box. I mean, I'm excited about it as you can tell. Yeah. But when you told me about this, I go, holy shit, this seems quite revolutionary. Anybody else doing this, as far as you know? 
Well, there's really no point. There's some Albertsons in Chicago that have done it. Uh, but when you look in the context of going to the, the supermarket, a lot of people are are fine with, you know, you, you pull up to the parking lot, call the number, and they sit there and veg out on their phone for eight minutes and they fill their shit on their car. So we're not really competing in that space. But from a, there's a company in Indianapolis called Market Wagon that has basically boutiqued uh, local food into a home delivery. And that's kind of what I think the value is, is collaborating with with all these different farmers and then just giving more convenience to the end consumer in that space. It also helps from, you know, one of the ways I like to think about this is collapsing the value chain so that there's less steps between the farmer and the consumer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. More money to be made by everybody, right? Yeah. Interesting. All right. We have Madman Jason here who's got all these things going on, but he's got another idea that he can't stop thinking about. So, all right, lay it on us, bro. Okay. So we just got the arrangements to, to purchase over 200 acres on the interstate uh, by two divided highways. Everyone will see it. And we're going to make a property similar to what you talk about, where it's a it's a direct-to-consumer. People live there. They camp. And basically, uh, what we're our starting point is we have a 100-acre field that's all pasture, tons of fencing, tons of structures, and we'll use it to turn livestock into smaller pieces of meat. So we'll, we're, we're creating a kill-and-chill network where people from different regions – We'll have uh, it slaughtered there. They'll just kill and chill. We'll take it here. We'll cut it down to subprimals for Muncie Meats, and then we'll grind our grinds there. So that will kind of cash flow the whole thing. So we're going to slow grow the, the main concept here. And basically, the concept is take uh, your Bass Pro Shops, take your Cabela's, and then put it outside. So instead of you going down the, you know, the aisle and say, oh, I like that fishing pole, you're outside fishing. And the pond now is loaded with fish. And, and if you want a bluegill, there's a QR code there with, for a bluegill. And we're collaborated with a, with a hatchery of, of fish. Uh, you can feed the fish. We're, we're going to basically have three major sources here where we have unlimited production, which is all permaculture. So we'll have grapes and hops and raspberries and you know popcorn, pumpkins, everything you can think of to grow. In between the crops, we'll be pruning the uh, perennial vegetation with livestock uh, through a technology called the Carbon Hyperloop, which is an autonomous solar-driven animal pruner. So that allows us to manage the landscape through livestock integration. So you've got the production of both the plants and the livestock, and then you've got the supply. So if you're a homesteader and you want some baby chicks, then you come here and you, you hold this chick and you go, oh, where'd you get this? Here you go. So we, we supply the raspberry bushes. We supply the chicks. We supply everything. So you've got <laughs> production, supply. I, I always start these tangents. I get so excited. I think about a third here. Just general education, agritourism. Uh, so schools, we want to have schools out there every single day. We want to have people camping. We're going to have concert venues. It's going to be a, a place for people to come out. We're going to have sport landscaping. We'll have a little league baseball diamond that'll make Williamsburg, PA, jealous. And it's just it's just taking this landscaping and uh, and creating actual, you know, 
the thing that kills me is, let's say I sprayed a thousand acres of corn today. I can smell the nitrogen on my hands. I'm driving a 120 foot sprayer as fast as the horsepower will allow me. Why do I have to grow only corn? Why couldn't I grow a thousand different things? And uh, that's kind of the, the spot that we're in where I've met so many people and have so many ideas. We want to change the, the, you know, as Joel Salatin talks about not having employees, we want to take the resources and the traffic and interconnect it to where we have so many gigs. Going back to the pond, okay? We have a 15-acre pond that they dug out to make the interchange of the highways, right? So you can buy your bluegill, but there could be a side gig where people pay to fish, they pay for the offtake, and then someone shows up at 3 o'clock and they, they charge you $3 to clean your fish. And that's that's a thing. And there, there are just hundreds of things that are all working together. Does that make much sense? An outdoor Cabela's times 10x. Yeah, I love it. That's a crazy idea. And you could also sell the produce off the property as well, huh? Yep, right through our AFMs. The, the third is not agritours. I'm sorry. It's vertical integration. So you've got the raspberries. You've got, we're going to have tons of pigs. So we've got 80 acres of just rugged woods that you can't even walk through. And uh, we'll put, we'll put pig in, pigs in there to clean it up. But, but you take the pigs, and then you remember uh, like in 1910, or my, my great-grandma had, had raspberry pie that was incredible. And the, the why it was incredible, she had this big old ball jar of lard that she would make the crust with. So what you start doing is like Miss Wick's pie, they're, they're famous, is in Winchester, Indiana. You say, Miss Wicks, will you make a pie that's made out of the lard of my pigs in the woods with the raspberries on the bush and create a pie that tastes better than anything that's remarkable? It's going to cost a little bit more, but you vertically integrate all the products on the property and to, to just make value-added products. And make them on the property or make them back at their factory? Just mostly the source. Yeah, they can take uh, you know the bushels of raspberries and and the beautiful thing about livestock also is we can pick all the pretty apples and the ones that fall, the pigs eat, you know, and, and they're eating the grapes and the apples and all that stuff. So nothing, nothing is wasted. We'll have so many livestock and we'll be able to move them so efficiently that we can just manage their impact and uh, just create more nutrient dense food. That's very interesting. And of course, another thing about producing berries for value added, it's got a much higher yield than berries for the grocery store where everything has to be perfect, right? You know, I don't know what it is, two, three X, the yield when you can just take any old one and toss it in there. The other thing, I think I sent you an email on this. It's an area of great interest of mine is robotic berry picking. Have you done any looking into that, where the state of the art of that is? So one of the guys that we're going to collaborate and, and he'll have a part of the equity is man's by the name of John Kemp. Google John Kemp, he is a, a true Amish man. He's 33 years old. And he, in my opinion, is one of the smartest men alive. And uh, he consults on millions of acres of value-added fruit and vegetable and crop production. Uh, and he knows every technology that there is to autonomously uh, pick berries, uh, the shaking and all that kind of stuff. So he's the guy, along with a man named Mark Shepard, and a couple other guys that have have, have not only you know, they're not just farmers that know their uh, domain; they consult on multiple domains 
they know how things play out. So we're going to take these mindsets and design landscapes that are going to manifest over three or five years and be space dried. And so I know the people that know how to do anything that has to do with growing things. <laughs> Very cool. Now, when you take it, like say your hundred acres that you're producing in this permaculture-ish, highly diversified fashion, I'm imagining you're producing a lot more dollars worth of food per acre than you do on, you know, hedgerow to hedgerow corn. For sure. I mean, it's, it's limitless. The thing that I always gravitate towards is experience. You don't remember some, the way something you know was priced. You remember how someone made you feel. You remember exuberance. And what we're going to compete against, you know, let's say you want to go see who's your favorite mu- musician. Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. If you wanted to see Bruce Springsteen, would you want to go to some New York City stadium, rub elbows with 50,000 people, wait in line 15 minutes to piss when you're coming out of your eyeballs? Or would you rather be with 2,000 people, get there at 5 o'clock and have a wine slushy and a a chicken that was raised between raspberries and have space on a natural amphitheater and it costs – you know, 200 bucks, both tickets are 200 bucks, but the experience, you can piss behind a tree you know, out here. Uh, we want to give people that space and freedom to feel like it's their own property. That sounds great. And it's funny you mentioned that. I've seen Bruce Springsteen once when I was 32 years old, and that was a long goddamn time ago, in Paris in a park with 2,000 people. Really? It was Un, four hour concert, unbelievable! Wow, totally different than I had imagined. You know, going to see him at Giant Stadium or some damn thing. I mean, this was literally just a random Paris park, and they'd set up a tent and a stage, and we heard the boss wail with a hundred thousand nine hundred ninety eight Parisians. Now, I'm sure that I'm being awfully naive about this situation. I know that there's intermediaries and agents and all this shit. But we want to create systems where we can go to a musician and say, hey, we'll give you, I'm just throwing numbers out here, 75% of ticket sales directly. And then we want to create conduits where the value goes straight to them because the, the connection of, of having Chris Stapleton and 6,000 people come out and spend $200, that's a lot of loot, even if you take a percentage of it. But that's a lot of people that become aware of the IPA that came from the hops on the property that they can become a fan of back in there, you know, a hundred miles away from this property. So we're going to completely change, hopefully the way that uh, we can kind of stack all these entities together. Yeah, I love this. This is, you know, complex systems thinking. Don't reduce it all to one thing that you do by the bazillion, but rather see how the various parts reinforce it. You know, you're very smart. You say, ha, I get people to come in for a Chris Knight show or something like that. And they see you and they say, well, let me subscribe to your meat service. And then the next thing you know, you know, they're also buying other stuff from you and they're bringing their kids out to fish for bluegills and all the pieces reinforce each other. It makes a lot of sense. We've touched on this concept a lot, but one of my favorite sayings that I don't think a lot of people grasp is don't outrun your headlights. And, you know, the world is, is evolved around production. But if you think of something and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to take three to five years to develop the market and I'm only going to produce enough to where I can sell it with a story behind it and quality. And, you know, next year I might sell 200 pigs in the woods, the next year 2000, the next year, you know, 4,000. 
let things develop. Let the play develop. Let the blockers get up. Create the value. And, and if you think that way, then you can you can do a lot of things really cheaply and do a lot of things and say, well, that, that's not a good idea. We're going to modify it or whatever like that. But farmers in general are just we just we're just we, we need to stay in our lane and grow as good of things. But we're just getting discounted where we were taking none of the value. The only thing that's relevant is we, where we started this conversation. You know, if corn goes to eight dollars, then we're going to raise the price of fertilizer and they're going to get it right below or above break even. And even if there is money to be made, now the farmers are competing for land. So they're going to pay every last ounce to cash rent. It's endless. You can't outrun it. I remember back in the 70s, there was a big run up in grain prices and farmers all over the Midwest hocked themselves to the eyeballs to buy land at 7,000 an acre in 1978. And then the prices crashed and a whole bunch of guys sucked on their shotguns. Yep. Yep. And that's that's unfortunate. But I think as rough as as my experience was growing up, I think if I didn't experience that, then I would just be another cog that was that was just felt like I needed to farm as many acres as possible. And until I felt that pain of watching two men pass in their prime and watching how they they exuded so much energy because I felt it, you know, uh, the first few years of farming, I wouldn't sleep for three or four nights to pound a crop out ahead of a rain. And, um, you know, we, we break our bodies down. We, we spray all these, these chemicals and I'm not saying that anything's killing us, but, but just the concept of us working our ass off and being price takers, it just doesn't feel like something I want to spend whatever talents I was gifted with chasing after. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up right there. What a great statement of Jason Mock and his amazing adventures in doing farms different. Before we go, we should also let people know that Jason's got a podcast as well. What's the name of your podcast? Uh, it's Mock Me. All right, we're just on episode six. You were the last one to be on there, Jim. It's actually a pretty good episode. I re-listened to it yesterday at 2X and sound like two guys on crank, but it was actually pretty interesting. So mock me, what platforms is it available on? It's on all of them, Spotify. I think the original one's some rabbit or something like that. We have a lot on YouTube, the video. We're like 14, 50 year olds right now, just going to gravel road and see what happens. Uh, we were not very polished yet, but eventually I think as we get into the fall and next winter, we'll, we'll get a little bit better polish, but I, I think they're, they've been interesting. Well, that was, that was great. You asked me a whole bunch of good questions. All right, we're going to wrap it right there. Jason Mock, Farm Weird. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.